Hey, Alex D here. This is episode 41 of Troublesome Terps, the podcast about topics that keep interpreters up at night. It is an unusual episode in that it was recorded as part of the Geneva Conference celebrating the centenary of conference interpreting. The event took place in early October 2019, and the organizers were kind enough to invite us as moderators for a so-called town hall event, where the attendees would be actively involved in the discussion. On top of that, we had three chief interpreters on the podium with us, Marie Dio, the chief interpreter of the United Nations in Geneva, Florica Finkhoyer, the director general of DG Interpretation at the European Commission, and Marie Muttilainen, the director of interpretation at the Court of Justice in Luxembourg. So what follows is a selection of discussions from the town hall, the complete proceedings of the conference, including photos, video, audio. Check out the conference website. The link is in our show notes. And lastly, thanks to Christopher Sainsbury from the University of Geneva for letting us use his interpreting from German into English. Okay, here we go. Okay, so welcome everyone and thanks for sticking around until this late hour in the day. Um, I have a question for our special guests um, because I am very much interested in your take on the conference so far. What was sort of the most interesting thing? Was there anything that immediately spoke to you? Anything that you took away from these one and a half days? And why don't we start with you, uh, Marie? En fait, euh, moi, ce qui m'a fait le plus plaisir, c'est de voir les jeunes et de voir la motivation et la passion des jeunes et de voir leur implication et de voir leur leur volonté de continuer à aller de l'avant leur volonté de comprendre ce qui s'est passé euh, quand ils n'étaient pas encore interprètes certains d'entre eux n'étaient même pas encore nés et, euh, et ça fait vraiment plaisir à voir Voilà. donc la conclusion que je tire après avoir vu euh, cette passion et cette motivation c'est que c'est que la profession est entre de bonnes mains. Voilà. Yeah. Uh, Marie, what about you? Je continue en français parce que je n'aurai pas le luxe de parler ma langue maternelle le finnois. <laughs> euh, je continue avec la langue de travail de la cour. C'est euh, un luxe de pouvoir parler entre professionnels d'une profession qui nous tient tellement à cœur. Euh, pour moi, ce qui m'a le plus marqué, c'était peut-être euh, la présentation de Ressus. Euh, je connais bien sûr aussi l'histoire de l'interprétation, même avant, même avant d'avoir entendu euh, son exposé hier, mais euh, ça ne fait jamais de mal de se souvenir du pourquoi on est là. Parce que pour moi, la, plus, la chose la plus importante, avant de penser à l'avenir, avant de penser à comment nous pourrions encore évoluer, c'est de savoir qu'on est là pour une mission, on a vraiment on a un travail à faire. Euh, il y a eu un besoin des interprètes de conférences, ça s'est fait, ça, ça a été créé il y a 100 ans, c'est un métier qui est quand même assez nouveau, si l'on y pense, et euh, ça m'a tout de suite projeté toutes les raisons pour lesquelles j'ai voulu moi-même être interprète. Merci beaucoup. Et euh, pour finir, Florica I can speak German, right? Yes, great. Well, for those who weren't paying attention when I was introduced, I am perhaps one of the only non-interpreters in the room. And of course, I'm rather aware of that. Particularly when I'm on a panel with such great interpreters such as 
Monsieur, the first thing I'd like to say is about what Marie just said. If you go back a hundred years and look at the whole interpreting community, we should be incredibly proud. Proud of what's been created. People like Mr. Thierry and where we stand now. So we have to look forwards. Sometimes when I look back at these hundred years, as was presented yesterday, the only thing that really has been constant over the last hundred years is change. At every political, social turning point, wherever there's been a complete change in the fabric of society, interpreters were there. And I think that's vital. And that's really a reason to be incredibly proud of us as a community. I have been thinking of a lot of things. The first thing I wanted to say was how welcome I have felt here. And I really appreciate that on behalf of all the sign language interpreters um, who are working hard in their many languages. We haven't always felt like we had an open door to meetings like this. And I cannot thank you enough. I have felt just absolutely one of you and one of your peers. That means a lot to me personally and professionally and as an academic as well. The thing that I wanted to say uh, most of all was what the distinguished honorary president, Mr. Thierry, just said was that Nuremberg was sheer madness. That resonated with all of us because that hasn't changed much. And the history of interpretation goes across many domains. And one of the authors I've read said that interdisciplinarity is an act of improvisation. And I can't think of any better preparation for the task of interpreting than madness and improvisation. And teaching our students about the history of interpreters and interpreting is important, but it's also important that they gain the skills to also be historical researchers in their own rights at the macro and micro levels, which again is great preparation for the task of interpreting. I wanted to say a whole lot of other things, but I'll stop there. Bite-sized today, right? Bite-sized. Jonathan, you're a researcher, I said in the beginning. Uh, Why should we care about research? Why should we care about research? So first I would like to do a straw poll because it's the end of the second day and everyone's looking a little bit like they need a coffee. Okay, so what I would like you to do is I would like you to put your hands up in the air if you, before you came to this conference, if you were a lit, if you were really pro research and before you got in the door, you were looking super forward to hearing from amazing researchers. Can I get some hands? Who is desperate to hear about research? Good. We've assimilated more of you. Very, very well done. So I just wanted to, to open the floor at this point to ask those of you who came into the conference going, I'm not sure about research. I'd like you to tell us from what you've heard and from what the researchers have said, where would you like research to go next? We gave researchers a million dollars, euros, Swiss francs, that's even better. <laughs> um, if you had a million Swiss francs, but the conditions of having a million Swiss francs were you have to find a nice researcher and give it to them. 
What would you like to do with your million Swiss francs? I think the usual rules apply. Jonathan is available, I think. I'm I'm two million. (laughs) So grab your nameplate and wave it. And I would like to hear the non-researchers tell the researchers what you would like them to do. Good afternoon. I'm Christina Edwards. I'm the chief interpreter at the UN in, in Vienna. What I would most like, which would help me very much in my daily work, would be new inter- new research which would prove the physiological effects on interpreter well-being of certain conditions such as increased stress, increased uh, workload and so on and so forth. There was a study done a long time ago, but nothing's been done since. And when we're constantly being asked to justify why we say the conditions must be what they are, it would be good to have something cutting edge on that. And that's an area that I think we would all like to know what is interpreting doing to us. Don't know about anyone else. I really enjoyed watching what interpreting was doing to my brain. <laughs> Explained a lot of my behavioral characteristics. <laughs> I just wanted to make a bit of a general point, like from a research perspective. Um, The discussion here in this room reminds me that interpreting research is a bit particular in that we have a very close relationship with the profession, obviously. But I think one of the problems for academic researchers, and I place myself in that position right now and in that perspective, is that I think it is not the role or the primary role of academic research to produce only the findings that are in the interest of a profession, that help a profession sustain itself, or that give the profession what it needs in order to argue for better working conditions, etc. That might be an outcome of academic research, but academic research might also produce findings that go against the interests or against what the profession wants to hear. And I think one of the problems that we have in communicating or in working together or in coming together is also that maybe the profession um, is not always, or maybe the findings produced by academic researchers do not always echo what the profession would want them to be. So it's very difficult as a researcher to go to professionals and tell them, look, actually my findings are this and this. You wanted me to produce these findings, but you know the reality is different. So I think that's part of the problem we have, is that the research agenda is not, and I think should not be set by the interests of the profession. Nathalie Lelibéré, Liberté, Bureau de la Traduction, Gouvernement du Canada. Euh, je pense que dans les deux derniers jours, on a parlé de l'histoire, on a parlé du passé, de la formation, euh, de la recherche. Euh, pour ma part, tout ce qui pourrait combiner un peu les, la recherche avec la technologie et les nouvelles compétences. Parce que quelle va être la profession dans 100 ans? Elle va probablement être différente. Donc, n'importe quelle activité qui va aider les interprètes à se positionner pour, pour le futur puis pour s'assurer que la profession va exister encore dans 100 ans devraient être les sujets qui sont les plus abordés. Important subject with the growth in artificial intelligence marketing where the artificial intelligence people tell us that they're going to replace everyone's job in 10 years' time, 15 years' time. And in some professions, there's very little pushback. And so we need to maybe think about, as interpreters, what is our answer when an artificial intelligence person comes in and says, I don't know how you do your job, I've never watched you do your job, but I'm going to replace you in 10 years' time. It's, we need to have an answer. And I think what's important as well um, is to, to get these 
because after all, we're, we're talking about different communities or sub uh, communities like practice, training, research. It's very important to get together. So have um, forums like this where these sort of sub-communities get together. There are other forums like this. There's the Skik Uni University Conference, which sort of brings together training, research, practice. There's collaboration between um, UNOC and the University in Geneva. So I don't know if you just have some something very brief to to add on that, sort of what how how to bring these sort of the people together and the communities together, what, what your experience has been and maybe the plans for the future as well. One of the moderators talk about being controversial today, right? Um, as I said this morning, <laughs> there is a discrepancy between what is being taught in um, pedagogical institutions and what is needed in international organizations. Um, this morning I talk about uh, accents, I talk about uh, topics, I talk about speed, I talk about the fact that BBC English is no longer spoken, but BBC English is English still being taught in uh, institutional um, pedagogical uh, institutions. And um, so how a student that has been taught in BBC English can cope at the UN with all the accents or can cope at the EU with all the accents is not possible. So student can just not cope. And, um, and something else I wanted to talk about as well regarding um, this missing link is also the pedagogical institutions are working on a pedagogical approach which is a, which has been the same for 70 years. And we talk about the past, we are talking about the future, and I think at a certain point, a discussion will be needed. Is it the right pedagogical approach? Is it? Is it something that can be discussed or not? For example, Ellen Campbell said this morning during uh, a Pecha Kucha that consecutive is a basis for simultaneous. Is it? Is it? I, I don't know. Some research, research well, on that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But you know, I, I, I myself, I'm not convinced. For example, I'm not convinced at all, at all, because I've been uh, teaching in schools for years, for years, and I've seen first-year students in consecutive very good, but they're not good in simultaneous, and some are bad at consecutive, but they're good in simultaneous. You know, and we talk about you know the two years, um, you know, EMCI with two years master, mm. and then we talk about the stage at the European institutions, the six months, and then the stage was very successful. It was a six months, uh, you know, a six months, six months duration, and it was producing very successful interpreters. I myself are coming from a six months program. It was a PCL, six months program, and that program as well has produced very successful interpreters. So why are we still talking about two years programs? Why not six months? Why not one year? Why not, you know, things like that? What I'm saying is, at a certain point, we will need to discuss why are we still continuing with the same pedagogical approach that we had 70 years ago. A discussion will be needed at that because there is a missing link because what is being taught and what we need, and this is what, you know, in for the freelance testing, for the competitive examinations, the passing rate is very low. It is very low, and it's still very low. Yeah. Comme le gant a été jeté, je vais essayer de le ramasser. 
puisque je représente quand même aussi une institution qui forme des interprètes. Euh, bon, on, on vient de dire, ou Marie vient de dire que nous formons toujours des interprètes comme, comme il y a 70 ans. Je suis partiellement d'accord et partiellement en désaccord. Je suis d'accord pour ce qui concerne la consécutive et la simultanée. C'est dû aussi au fait que les institutions qui organisent des tests d'accréditation obligent les étudiants à passer ces tests d'accréditation et les organisent justement sur les deux, en consec mais aussi en sim. Je ne suis pas tout à fait d'accord avec la remarque qui a été faite que la consec apprend à l'étudiant d'analyser des textes, il y a d'autres façons de leur apprendre à analyser des textes, je pense. On n'a pas besoin de passer par la consec. Donc là, je, suis, je serais plutôt en faveur, enfin peut-être pas en faveur, mais je pense qu'il n'est pas absolument nécessaire de passer par la consec pour apprendre la, la simultanée, premièrement. D'ailleurs, quand nous bénéficions des euh, assistances pédagogiques de la part de SKIC, ces interprètes viennent chez nous et viennent dire à nos étudiants, ils s'occupent de modules... De, on est dans un module de, de, de consécutive et ils disent à nos étudiants « Oui, enfin, de toute façon, nous, on ne fait, on, on fait jamais ça. Je ne sais même pas si, je, si moi, en tant qu'interprète professionnel dans une institution européenne, je serais encore capable de faire une consécutive. Euh, » Donc, c'est un peu paradoxal, je trouve. Et euh, il faut, enfin, je pense qu'il ne faut pas non plus nous reprocher à nous de former les étudiants euh, de telle façon qu'ils réussissent mieux ou qu'ils ont plus de chances de réussir à un test d'accréditation, parce qu'on s'adapte au test d'accréditation, c'est normal aussi. Euh, là où je ne suis pas d'accord, c'est que les méthodes d'enseignement ont complètement changé depuis euh, 70 ans, heureusement. Il y a pas mal d'institutions qui, enfin, on a, on a vu des exemples, hein, qui ont introduit le blended learning, etc. Donc là, je pense qu'on a quand même fait des progrès depuis euh, le début, euh, enfin, depuis les années 40. Euh, voilà. Research doesn't only have to be academic research that is applicable um, in this sort of environment. Uh, research can also be done in a very commercial sense, which would be, again, what Sarah Hickey was already telling us about. I believe it was this morning a little bit. Um, so, Sarah, I'm wondering why should people, why should academic researchers, why should staff interpreters care about commercial market research in the language industry? Thanks, Alex. So yeah, it, it's a good question. Uh, I also come from the academic side. I'm a trained conference interpreter and did my uh, thesis and the full academic way. And now move to the complete other side, uh, market research and consulting um, in the language industry. And I find it, first of all, incredibly fascinating, but also I do believe it is relevant for this side of the industry because... Um, There's a bit of a disconnect, from what I can tell, from having been to some conferences on that side and now being back here. And in the end, yes, this is a conference about conference interpreting, but there's so much more interpreting out there. And in the end, um, first of all, why are we making this divide? Yes, maybe a certain specific training is necessary for the different types of interpreting, but in the end, we are an interpreting community. We try to allow language access, and there's a whole huge industry behind that that has done a lot of research um, and I do think that some of these aspects affect every part of the industry, especially when it comes to technologies as well. All the talks about uh, remote interpreting or even when we talk about uh, AI-assisted uh, assisted interpreting, um, especially when it comes to remote, uh, this is already a reality out in the private market and it 
it works. And in the US especially, that is the largest market and they use it every day in hospitals, sometimes for courts, and it allows language access. And I think a lot can be drawn from that also for conference interpreting and we need to move with the times too. I mean, I'm all for protecting, of course, the professional standards and quality, 100%, and also the conditions for conference interpreters or all interpreters. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of um, really valuable knowledge out there that I believe would be incredibly useful also to bring conference interpreting into the next stage. Um, and also when it comes to the working conditions for conference interpreters. Um, so we try to encompass all angles from the provider to the buyer, the enterprises, the actual practitioners. Um, yeah, I think we need to try and close the gap a bit more because purely from having been here, it feels like a completely different world sometimes. Because obviously there is knowledge that we think we don't have that already exists. And the second question is, if the knowledge is out there and we are here, whose job is it to get it? I think that was a very valuable thing that you mentioned, because I do think, especially when it comes to new technologies and also remote interpreting, there's a lot of information that we still need to to gather and to sort of to compile. Um, but I think that also goes to what you were saying, Marie, about the curriculums and how we need to change to adapt to technologies and kind of reassess how we train interpreters. And that's how I want to throw it over to Josh Goldsmith, because in his Pecha Kucha, he was already talking about um, new technologies, how we can, for example, use the internet in order to take innovative training approaches. So I just want to throw it over to you, Josh, and ask you, um, how do you believe, can, can we use or can we use online training when it comes to these sort of new technologies like tablets, of course, you guys are doing already, but remote interpreting and generally just the, this brave new world of technology that we're faced with? Were you letting all of the people who were going to be called on know in advance that they were going to be called on? <laughs> Most of them. <laughs> I think that there are many possibilities to flip the system on its head, to reconsider what we've been doing, to look at how we can take a traditional curriculum and move it online, how that might change. Um, and of course, it can apply to new technologies just as I think it could apply to interpreting skills. One of the problems with research is that we can't research something which hasn't been discovered yet. And so we can't tell you what will be the effect of the technology that we're going to be using in five years because we're not using it yet. And I would like to throw a question back open to the audience. Aside from remote interpreting and machine interpreting, which we seem to like to talk about a lot, are there any smaller technologies? Are there, are there any other changes in the way of working that we haven't heard about and that aren't commonly discussed that you think could change interpreting practice even tomorrow. Good afternoon, once again. Uh, the moderators asked us to say something different, new challenges, not just machine interpretation, not just artificial intelligence. I would like to mention something else that I think is also challenging and perhaps a bit dangerous and is certainly connected to machine interpretation, development, etc. So perhaps you've heard that there are lots of talks and students are also asking us trainers what we think about it. Uh, the tendency to write 
the speeches to political leaders, company spokespeople, etc., etc., in the way that machines will be able to interpret in order to uh, avoid possible complications, etc., etc. Is it something that we also need to research? What do you think about it? Si je pense au type de plaidoirie que nous avons le luxe d'interpréter à la Cour de justice en ce moment, et si je pense exactement à ce risque-là, euh, c'est quelque chose qui me fait titiller tout de suite, qui fait un tilt total. Euh, Est-ce que vraiment l'on puisse dire que pour des raisons euh, imposées par l'utilisation d'une technologie, les gens ne pourraient plus s'exprimer de la manière qu'ils font aujourd'hui C'est-à-dire, il est, il est vrai, j'ai entendu la même chose déjà dans d'autres discussions, euh, que euh, certains orateurs seraient déjà en ce moment même en train de se dire il faudrait que je fasse des phrases plus simples il faudrait pas que je fasse trop de citations il faudrait que le texte soit facilement traduisible par une machine et pourquoi est-ce que personne se pose la question pourquoi nous voulons aller vers ce chemin là euh, c'est une perte énorme, imaginez un avocat qui vient devant la cour de justice de l'Union Européenne exposer une affaire italienne devant les juges européens il doit avoir le droit de citer la Bible comme il veut, il doit avoir le droit de s'exprimer comme il veut. C'est toute la nature même du métier qu'on est en train de, de mettre en danger et de l'humain, pas seulement du métier d'interprète. Mais est-ce que nous n'avons pas envie aussi de nous exprimer comme nous le voulons faire librement, sans avoir à penser à « hop, j'ai dépassé le, le, le nombre de mots » ou « dépassé le nombre de, de lettres ». C'est ahurissant. Je pense qu'une vraie réflexion là-dessus ne ferait pas de mal non plus. Merci beaucoup. Le commentaire de Alice Danke, je mets ça. Thank you. I will now speak my mother tongue, if that's okay. I just wanted to underline that when we talk about remote interpreting or let's stick to remote. It's not about replacing all other kinds of interpreting with remote. We're not thinking of getting rid of all the booths and just having remote interpreting. And when we talk about what that means for staff interpreters at institutions, well, I think probably they would be some of the least affected by remote interpreting. We know that the Commission is already looking at this. If we look, for example, at the Court of Justice and other contexts, it's not about replacing ordinary or other forms of interpreting with remote. It's about widening the market, actually. Perhaps smaller meetings where otherwise it wouldn't have been worth having interpreting they can't afford booths, there's no space in the room for booths, then actually they can have interpreters, which means more work for interpreters, whereas they otherwise might just have not had them. Maybe if we're talking about Australia, Australia, they're actually using remote interpreting for villages, which are a very long way away from anything else. People can have access to language services, even when they are a long way away from the rest of society. And it's important to remember that We are responsible for building these bridges, not the only ones, but it is partly our job. And we need to facilitate that access to languages. We must pay attention and ensure that the quality is enough, that the technology is there, of course. But actually, 
looking to how we can improve communication more widely is a good thing and might just create more work for interpreters. We're not being replaced, we're not replacing the rest of our work, but we might have more work. I'm not talking about having machines in front in, in courtrooms to replace us, that's not the idea. Uh, when I uh, say the word tsunami, I wanted to be pessimistic. I'm quite optimistic about the future of a conference interpreting. But as of when a, we, you have a tsunami, if you have an alarm saying something is happening, you can react uh, and prepare. That's my point of view. I'm quite optimistic about professional interpreting. But I'm quite sure things are changing, things are happening, and we have to be prepared. That's my point of view. I'm not pessimistic. I knew that hand would go up, Barry. <laughs> Well, and it doesn't have anything to do with technology either. Um, but one of the things that I see in interpreting practice um, the world over is a shortening of the interpreted events and interactions. And in a world where we like to divide things up into days, meetings are taking place in questions of hours and minutes. And those meetings often need our services. And when you have an existing paradigm that measures things in days and meetings that are measured in minutes and hours, you have a problem. This is something that we haven't wanted to address, I think, as a profession. And I think we need to have serious discussion about it. Because I would remind everyone here that our clients are not in the business of giving interpreters work. They are in the business of getting their job done, and we are there to help them do it and provide that service. Now, that does not mean that we want to undermine conditions, but there is a reality that we need to grapple with because there's a simple fact that if the solution that we offer is too cumbersome for them to use, they will seek other solutions. That's all. We also have room management, conference management. And in this context, I do see a lot about going from meeting rooms to meeting space. The conferences change, even for our own commissioners, for our own work, but also outside. So that's, if you want a market, mm. as a manager, I have to look at that. So I get, I have to get prepared. I just wanted to uh, chime in on Barry's comments because I thought they were very interesting. And those who know me know I'm probably not a controversial person or the least controversial person you know, but we were asked to be controversial, so I'm going to give it my best. I think, um, I think AIC and I think the sector needs to look at the daily billing for sure because I, we're a perfect example. <clears throat> the Translation Bureau, we're uh, client-based and client-demand-driven. Uh, we charge back as well, many of our clients, um, and we have interpreters who operate under two different systems. So many of our interpreters, well, most of, many of our interpreters are staff, but we pay our daily rate like all of the other institutions. And then for our sign language interpreters, the freelancers, they don't get paid a daily rate. They get paid an hourly rate, and I've seen the invoices, and I can tell you that some of our sign language interpreters make more than some of our spoken language interpreters. So I think it's a, a discussion that AIC should have, because I think it's something that bears considering on all sides. 
I think there was also a reaction from Olga somewhere on the left. And then Marie, if you want to also chime in on that, we'll get to you. Okay. Aussi à, à, on se connaît. Euh, je voulais juste spécifier, comme tout à l'heure Florica a réagi aussi, euh, que dans les institutions européennes, bien sûr, les freelances ne sont pas payés à l'heure, ils sont payés à la journée. Et en plus, à la Cour de justice, où la préparation est euh, cruciale, nous payons les freelances pour une journée entière de préparation avant de, de les mettre en cabine le jour après. Donc, une... Une audience à la cour veut toujours dire minimum deux journées de travail entières, dont l'une est uniquement pour la préparation des freelances. Ok, merci pour cette clarification. Euh, J'ai Marklène Konorbaev. Uh, lest anyone think that I was advocating that sign language interpreters should not make a respectable living wage, that was not at all the comment. It was to provoke a conversation because there's not one way of earning a respectable living wage. That's all. And I believe our sign language brothers and sisters should earn as much as us. Just wanted to say, I say that every time, but I think it's important. We have lots to learn from the sign language community and the sign language interpreting community. Okay, we're going to do a very brief change of topic. And I'm going to start this with a very, very brief story because I've been told if I, if I tell a story, I have to be brief. About a year ago, I was addressing a forum for business people in Edinburgh. And a business coach who I'd been working with came up to me afterwards and said, oh, I didn't actually know what it was you did all day. And then her second remark was, I didn't realize this interpreting thing was actually interesting. So I would like to pose this a comment in the, the few minutes that remain. Imagine that we're not in Geneva, a city with more international organizations than some people have had hot dinners. Imagine you are in deepest, darkest Edinburgh or Cardiff or somewhere else where not everyone is multilingual. How do we reach people who might not even be able to spell interpreter, but whose businesses might need us? who certainly who might need interpreters when they go to the doctor, who might be scientists who need to go to meetings and understand the science. How do we build interpreting public relations for the future? It's the one unspoken topic because we all like to think that everyone knows what it is we do, why we do it, and why it matters. So I'd like to throw it out to anyone who's brave enough. What should interpreter interpreting PR look like, a kind of PR that reaches people who right now might not even be able to spell interpreter, never mind know how to use one. Sarah. Yeah, I'm going to be brave. <laughs> uh, I think, and this is no surprise to hear now from me, I guess, uh, this goes back to research in my opinion, because in the end you just have to show them uh, how many people there are out there who require access to other languages and what that effect can have, for example, on businesses as well. 
We did a large study on um, how interpreting uh, can be used in the retail market, for example, and how much more profits that could bring to um, shops as well, and that it's an affordable, an affordable investment for them, and that the return on investment would be really profitable for them, which again, would, which would be a win-win, right? Because we would have more work for interpreters, but also um, the other side would benefit too. I think when you're looking at... Uh, this side and other people who usually are not connected to the market. Um, maybe you have to speak a little bit more in the business language for them because it is an investment, not to forget that. Um, and yeah, lots of people forget um, how much more beneficial it can be for them to offer access to languages. So we're not just craftspeople, we're also business people and investments. Pas évident. On parle d'un élite. Nous sommes certainement, je, je fais certainement partie de cette élite. Euh, mais je l'assume euh, et ce n'est pas automatique c'est une chose qu'il ne faut pas oublier ce n'est pas automatique pour nous non plus nous sommes les institutions de l'Union Européenne des Nations Unies nous avons des interprètes de conférences dans des cabines qui sont conformes à chaque norme ISO possible il n'est pas automatique que les personnes pour lesquelles on travaille se rendent compte du travail que l'on fait et il n'est pas non plus automatique qu'ils utilisent les services des interprètes et Quand on parle de relations publiques, pour faire un, un, un tout petit peu de, de relations publiques, pour faire, pour permettre que cette situation soit gérable et pour que l'interprétation soit de bonne qualité, c'est à moi et à mon équipe, c'est au, au manager de prendre les devants, d'expliquer au juge déjà quelle est l'importance du travail d'un interprète, ce que cela nécessite de, de pouvoir le, le faire bien, au greffe de la cour où arrivent les plaidoiries, les textes, aux orateurs surtout qui viennent devant la cour pour leur faire comprendre combien il est important de travailler en coéquipier en fait avec l'interprète pour que ça se passe bien. Il y a plein de choses à faire et à nous de le faire. Euh, oui, en fait, euh, comme le disait Marie, euh, je pense que c'est important euh, de se vendre, mais il faut vendre l'excellence. En fait, on est arrivé à un niveau, à une situation où euh, les délégués maintenant parlent, parlent les langues, en fait. Ils les comprennent, ils comprennent plus ou moins l'anglais, ils comprennent plus ou moins le français, plus ou moins l'espagnol. Et en fait, ils mettent leurs écouteurs quand ils ne comprennent pas, à cause de l'accent. C'est pas qu'ils ne comprennent pas la langue, ils ne comprennent pas l'accent, ou ça va trop vite, ou c'est complexe. Et c'est là où ils mettent leurs écouteurs, et c'est là où ils ont besoin d'interprétation. Et c'est là où l'interprète doit être excellent. Et, et c'est ça, euh, moi en tant que chef interprète, c'est ça mon travail, c'est véritablement vendre l'excellence et expliquer au client que s'il veut vraiment tout comprendre, s'il veut vraiment euh, euh, participer euh, pleinement euh, à un débat, il a besoin de l'excellence, il a besoin de nous. Et je dois dire que ça marche. Et c'est là où... Euh, où il est important pour tous de comprendre, je crois que c'était euh, Ravier qui disait ça ce matin, qui disait euh, qu'on était obligé, au niveau des thèses d'accréditation, on était obligé euh, d'accepter que, que, que l'excellence, on ne pouvait plus se permettre d'accepter des gens moyens ou des gens médiocres. Et en fait, c'est ça. Et donc, le travail de relations publiques, c'est un travail très important, mais on ne peut vendre que l'excellence. On ne peut plus vendre rien. On ne peut vendre plus rien d'autre, en fait. Often, unfortunately, Negative political developments, for me, are opportunities. Brexit, sorry to say, never ever had been so much appetite for national languages and multilingualism 
than now in the European Union. Big organizations like us, we are not shielded from not having to explain the value added of multilingualism and interpretation. So we have had a fantastic discussion. And being a good practitioner researcher, rather than leaving us with a conclusion, I would like to leave us with a question. Many of us in this room have children or grandchildren or both. Imagine that your children or grandchildren or someone's children came up to you and said, I want to be a conference interpreter. Would you be able to recommend to a seven-year-old like my son or a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old or even a 15-year-old to go through all of the efforts that we've talked about to get trained? to go through all the efforts to learn the languages, to go through all the efforts to learn the, the world knowledge. Would you, after everything you've heard about the past of conference interpreting, about the present and about the future, be happy to recommend to the, the children of now, the conference interpreters of tomorrow, that they follow us in our career? Thank you very much.